Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Howdy y'all. Good to have you back with us. This is the final edition of The Blind Side podcast coming to you from our trip of the United States. We're currently with my mother-in-law in Lebanon, Tennessee, and having a great week here. It's a little bit more relaxing than it has been over the last couple of weeks where we've been seeing lots of people and seemingly on the move all the time. So it is nice to be here. We've been taking in the election and I will have a lot to say about the election at the end of the podcast. But before we get there, it's something a little bit different this week. It's a podcast that I wasn't anticipating putting together. But on the Mosin Explosion, we've been doing a little bit of broadcasting from all over the place while we've been in the United States. We've even done a little bit of broadcasting from a moving Amtrak train. We've taken you all over the place. And in last week's Mosin Explosion, which airs at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on a Sunday afternoon on Mushroom FM, which you can find in all the good radio apps and on the web at mushroomfm.com. And then it's repeated one more time at 5 a.m. Eastern on a Tuesday morning. On the explosion, we took our listeners on a tour of the seeing eye. And a lot of people said we missed it. We would really like to hear it. And so while we don't make a habit of regurgitating the Mosin Explosion, because we hope that you will listen to it live on Mushroom FM and interact with us via email and social media and the phone, which is what it's all about, there has been so much demand for this that we will make an exception in this case, and we will play that material on this week's edition of the Blind Side podcast. We'll have Bonnie Mosin herself ahead of that, who used to work for the Seeing Eye some of that time in public relations, and so she'll be telling us a bit of the backstory of the Seeing Eye, the world's oldest guide dog school, that we couldn't talk about when we were on the tour just because of time pressure. So hope you enjoy that. Thanks for being a part of the Mushroom FM family. Have you ever thought about coming on this side of the mic and hosting your own show with us? Talk or music, pre-recorded or live, years of experience or a newbie. If you have an idea, we can help turn it into reality. When you broadcast with Mushroom FM, you gain access to reliable, robust and capable infrastructure. You'll work with an experienced and supportive management team who can help you develop your craft. You'll be a part of Mushroom FM's legendary special events. And you get to work with some awesome teammates. Start your journey to being a fun guy today by visiting mushroomfm.com slash join. That's mushroomfm.com slash join. And become a part of the team that innovates and entertains. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. And as we read a couple of comments, Bonnie Mosin herself may want to comment on a couple of these comments. So welcome to you, Bonnie. Welcome to the Blindside podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on here today. Yeah, This is the first time you've been on the Blindside. It is Side. the first time I've been on. Do you listen to it? Yes, I oh, do. Oh, that's very good. It's nice to be it's listened to. It's a very to. enjoyable show. We I will encourage get you... everyone to listen. Yeah, well, yes. Well, of course, people who are listening have been sufficiently encouraged to listen, I suppose. But yeah, well, we will get you on the podcast as an interview subject at some point about your book, which is called It's Off to Work We Go. You might want to give us a bit of a plug for that book. It might be a good read for those in the US who are going to be having a bit of travel time, maybe over Thanksgiving. Maybe over Thanksgiving. It's Off to Work We Go is a comprehensive look at job readiness, the skills and job placement for persons who are blind or visually impaired. But it does cover much more than 
that it could be very beneficial to anyone looking for a job or anyone who is disabled or has been out of the workforce for a while. And we it's a very lighthearted, easygoing read, very easy to get through. We cover such subjects as job searching, we interviewing, cover letters, resume writing, interview prep, and the most important thing, which is not often covered in career manuals, career placement manuals, is how to survive the office environment, because that can be very challenging. It can. Also look at an overall look at the voc rehab program in the U.S. It's different from state to state, but I kind of give a glimpse into the inner workings of a VR agency and how to best work with that agency, because it is a team effort to look for a job. And that's, that's pretty much it. So that's it's off to work we go. It's mm-hmm. available in the Mosin Consulting Store where you will find other tasty morsels to consume. You can head on over to mosin.org and then choose the store link. So let's go to the comments that we've received, or a couple of them anyway. Uh, Larry Showalter has been in touch, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, on your recent podcast with Judy Dixon, a good friend of mine, you asked for information on how others had managed the extra weight of dog food in airline luggage. This is why I thought I'd bring you in now, Bonnie, you see, because you have been raising this and I've been talking about it on the blind side Mm -hmm. for the last couple of weeks. He continues, about six weeks ago, my wife, Wendy, David and I flew on United Airlines from Seattle, where we live, to Rome for a three-week cruise and a vacation. That sounds very nice. It does sound nice. We are both blind, he says, and travelled with our two guide dogs. So we each had about 20 days' worth of dog food (laughs) in zip-on bags. Wendy was successful in convincing the United Airlines Accessibility Desk that the food for our dogs was equivalent to a medical necessity. Each dog must remain on a diet with which it is accustomed to avoid ill health. We had a note from our vet to this effect. Accordingly, United gave each of us permission to check a second bag or to take two carry-on bags if we preferred at no cost. Our agreement was that the extra suitcase was solely for dog food and all other dog supplies, such as grooming, toys, dog life jacket and treatment, etc. It just had to be strictly dog-related materials. We packed that way, but no one ever checked to see what was in our two extra bags. United entered this approval in our record for the flights in question, so we would not be troubled on the return flight from Europe. This proved essential for our return flight from Rome. I don't know that this will work in the future with United or any other airline, or if it is relevant for you in New Zealand, but we will certainly try this approach when we next travel. What do you think of that? I think that's a great idea. That's the way it should be, that's right? That's the way it should be, yeah. I think just talking to them. and um, I know it's kind of a gray area with dog food because we've run into it on the domestic flights. I, I think they may be a little more lenient on international. They tend to be a little bit more interesting. At least Air New Zealand would be. But... Um, I think that's a great idea, and if we're faced with this long travel again, we will certainly check into that. Yeah, not ab- absolutely. Have a big surprise once we get to LA or wherever. 
yeah. You've got to try these things. Yeah, you do. You've got to try, try these things. Yeah. And uh, David is in Louisiana. He's been in touch and said that he enjoyed Judy Dixon's interview and hope that Judy continues in the role for some time to come. And he also says that he had heard that the humidity is better on the Dreamliner, sort of air quality in general, and did we think that was the case? And I actually think I did comment on that, that I thought you that did. the air was a little better. And it's um, 12 hours going to Los Angeles from New Zealand and for some reason 13 hours going back. So it is a long time to be in an aircraft. And yes, David, we did, I think, notice a difference I in think so. air I think quality. So. It was a, a much better air quality experience, and it was certainly great having the Wi-Fi. I usually find that once I get off these long-haul flights that I don't feel good. I feel kind of like I've gotten a cold. I'm very sensitive to the environment on the plane and the reconstituted air. But I didn't find it this time, which was which was good. And you were a bit underwhelmed by the Dreamliner. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was okay, but it, it, and it may have been, no offense here, it may have been because it was an American carrier, and I just did not feel that I was treated as well as I am aboard Air New Zealand. Um, Even though we were told, told them three times that we were bringing a guide dog on board, they had no clue. And Air New Zealand always gives you a little pad you can put down for the dog. And usually the dog doesn't need it, but just in case. And um, they were actually going to put, we were in the bulkhead. They were actually going to put another person in the bulkhead Mm. with us. And I'm like, this is not going to be a fun flight if they do that. And thankfully, I don't know what they did with the person that they were going to put there, but they did not end up there. So... Um, the person would not have been happy either, I The suspect. person would not have yeah. been happy. It would not have been a good flight at all. Now, since this is a tour of the Seeing Eye coming up, so there will be a number of guide dog handlers who are listening to the podcast. And if it's the first time that you're listening because of that, then a very warm welcome. We hope you'll be a regular. Maybe we could just take some time to talk about the process of getting a dog back into New Zealand, because I know there's a bit of interest in this. Mm-hmm. And it's the Friday afternoon as we record this here in Tennessee, and we're we're beginning the process Mm -hmm. of the return journey for your seeing eye dog, Lizzie. And it is a big process, right? It begins some months in advance. It does. It's, it's, if you're bringing a dog originally over from the U.S., if it's not traveled to New Zealand before, it's a much longer process that you have to start at least six months out. The dog has to be – let me explain. New Zealand is a remote island, if you can picture that. It is the farthest place on the planet you can go pretty much and still be on the planet that's civilized. I mean, you have uh, Antarctica past us. But it's a very remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And our main source of import and export is agricultural products. We have more sheep – than humans on the island. We have about 60 million sheep and about 4 million people. And we also are a big exporter of beef. Grass-fed cattle are mainstay of agriculture on the island as well, and racehorses. So we are an agrarian economy is is what keeps us afloat. And because of that, we are rabies-free country. We're free from many of the diseases that you would see with animals in the U.S. and and other parts of the world. There are other rabies-free countries in the world, and if an animal is coming in from those countries, the import requirements are less strenuous. However, if coming from a country where rabies is controlled, which would be the U.S., 
there are certain criteria that the animal must qualify for to be allowed into New Zealand. It's governed by the Ministry of Primary Industries, which is our version of the USDA, or similar governing authority in Every other countries Every time I hear USDA, my mouth waters for a <laughs> well, good juicy steak. We have dinner. a good yeah, juicy a steak huge. coming up, actually. My yeah. mom said if you ate all that, you'd yeah. bulge. But anyway, so if you're bringing a dog over originally for the first time, if you live in the U.S. and are coming over with the dog, you have to start about six months out. You have to have a rabies titer test, and the only place that can do that is Kansas State University. Then there are several steps through the months of getting the dog in with certain shots they have to have. They have to have two rabies vaccines, or one, actually one rabies vaccine, I think it is, um, and be tested and treated for several external and internal parasites. Now, visiting, now that I've lived in New Zealand, going over and coming back, it's not as strenuous. What she had to do is have another rabies vaccine, even though she doesn't have rabies. She will, her next trip, she will have to have the rabies titer test, which is done in Australia. They send it to Australia to test for it. She also had to be true. We don't have heartworm in New Zealand. So Lizzie had to be treated 30 days prior to leaving for her heartworm. And then, and with a flea, flea treatment. And then two days prior to leaving, she had to be treated for internal parasites and external parasites. Now, with all this, it's not as simple as just going to the vet, having them do it, signing a document. It has to go through MPI. If you can imagine anyone that's gone through any sort of bureaucratic paperwork, and you're dealing with two different governments, the U.S. does not require anything to come into the country. Basically, they didn't even do it this time. The customs agents just look at the, oh, it's a dog. It's still walking. It's not dead. There's nothing growing out of it. Go on through. They don't care. Um, however, I do have the paperwork with me if I were to be stopped. I have what's called an import permit to get back into New Zealand. And so you send all the documentation to MPI. They sign off on it. Usually they have some questions that you have to send back to them and back and forth with them. Now, while I'm over here, there are certain things that are supposed to happen. Before we go back to the to the to New Zealand, she has to have another flea and tick treatment and another heartworm treatment, and the vest has to make sure that she is free of any kind of external parasites. Because if they find a tick on her when she goes back to New Zealand, she'll have to go into quarantine, which will yeah. not be our home quarantine. She's so pristine that she's, yes, she she arrives at the airport singing, "There ain't no bugs on there me." There ain't no bugs there on me, no right? Bugs on me. And this is seems fairly simple on the outside. But it has to be done by a USDA-certified veterinarian. They have to sign this paperwork. They have to apply the flea and tick preventative. They have to put what was in the flea and tick preventative, what the ingredients were, when it was done. And I was telling the vet this morning or this afternoon when I was there, and then you have to swear on a Bible that what you wrote in there is true. And then you go to your port of departure, which will be ours, L.A. Interestingly, it does not have to be a port. That was hyperbole, by the way, about swearing on the Bible. What? You don't have to do You that. don't have to do no, it, but no, you might no. as well. No. Um, anyway, but um, anywhere can be a port of departure because it's a service animal and it's traveling in the cabin of an aircraft. The use of the port of departure is when they have to seal a crate if an animal is being shipped. However, when I was over here last week, we ran into the issue where the, the USDA office in Nashville is not always open. 
and I had to go through Florida, and they got confused. And yeah, our paperwork was better than anything they had ever seen as far as a service animal coming into New Zealand, but it caused much anxiety for me. So what we're doing now is going to go to L.A. When, Monday night, and I'll go out to the USDA office in Hawthorne on Tuesday morning, and hopefully they will say this is okay, and we'll sign it, and everything is good. That rarely happens. They want every T crossed and every I dotted. So it's basically a confusing process as far as it's, – it's not a confusing process as far as doing it, what you have to do. It's the paperwork surrounding, and you're dealing, as I said, with two different governments that you can't possibly understand what they want. They change it all the time. I was reading over it today when we were in the the vet's office, and it's like reading the Constitution or reading some long legal legal document. If this is it, then you revert to um, Clause Number Two in the Biosecurity Act of 1967, and, and that sort of thing. So yes, it is a long and drawn out process. Well, being well, we'll get it back into the country mm-hmm. safely and without any drama. Yes, hopefully. Our place, our issues, the blind side with Jonathan Mosen. So now as promised, a look at our tour of the Seeing Eye, and very shortly we will play you the recordings that were part of the Mosin explosion last week on Mushroom FM www.mushroomfm.com. But before we actually take you to the Seeing Eye and what will be a stereo recording, Bonnie's still with us because we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the seeing eye and we go way back for the beginnings of the seeing eye don't we to the 1920s i believe before that if you want to think about it the the seeing eye is the oldest continuous guide dog school in the world it was founded in 1929 in switzerland however the idea of a dog guiding a blind person predates thousands of years they have seen murals on cave walls and even in pompeii where there have been pictures of a dog guiding a blind man, which, if you think about it, a blind person who gets kind of sick of having to sit around the cave or the cliff dwelling or the the villa or whatever um, all the time would, would think of a way to get out if they were very enterprising. So it's it's not out of the question to think about a blind person saying, ooh, we got pooch here. You know, you're tired of chasing sheep or turning the spit on the rotisserie. So I will just put this little harness or leash on you and see if I can train you to guide. So it's 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 not out of the question to think that that was done many years ago. However, it wasn't until the First World, World War on the battlefields of Germany that the idea really came to fruition. They, a German doctor realized that some of the dogs were good at finding live vet, uh, live um, soldiers, wounded soldiers on the battlefield and helping them back to the front lines. So <clears throat> he decided after World War II to start training dogs to guide blinded veterans. And two schools were started in Germany. There was an extremely wealthy expatriate from Philadelphia named Dorothy Harrison Eustace who had a keen interest in the German Shepherd breed. She had an estate in Switzerland called Fortunate Fields where she bred her own dogs and trained them for the Border Patrol, Search and Rescue, Avalanche, Search and Rescue in Switzerland. 
And someone invited her to write an article on her breeding program for the Saturday Evening Post, which was a well-respected and much-read magazine of the time. Now, Dorothy was a very private person, and she really did not want attention falling on her Fortunate Fields program. So talk about serendipity here. She decided, instead of writing about her dogs, she would write about a program that she had heard about in Potsdam, Germany, where they trained the guide dogs to guide blinded veterans. She was a very religious person, a member of the Christian Scientist Science Church, and she decided to call this article The Seeing Eye, after the part in Proverbs where it says the seeing eye and the hearing ear. So she wrote this article thinking, wow, you know, they're not going to pay attention to my little program. I'll publish this article. I'll go back to doing what I love to do best without the public's prying eye. Wrong. There was a gentleman named Morris Frank, was from Nashville, Tennessee, attended Vanderbilt University. He had lost all of his vision in two separate accidents. I know one was boxing in high school, and I believe the other one was when he was a kid and he fell off a horse or got hit by something. I forget what happened. But anyway, he was totally blind, attended Vanderbilt University, and Morris had to be led around all the time. This was even, guide dogs actually predate keen travel, from what I understand, or at least um, orientation and mobility with proper use in the cane technique. But Mars had to be led everywhere. So he might go to the, the barber shop, someone might take him down to the barber shop, but he might have to sit there four or five hours before someone could come get him. And Morris was a very precocious kind of uh, in-your-face. He was very opinionated, stood up for himself, and uh, wasn't afraid to use a few four-letter words now and again. Someone saw this article. I believe it was a local newsstand person that saw this article and said, Hey, Morris, you got to read this article in the Saturday Evening Post. Of course, that was before the KNFB Reader, NFB Newsline, so he had to have someone read him the article. He immediately had someone, he dictated a letter to Dorothy Harrison Eustace saying, if you train one of these dogs for me, I will come back to the United States and I will spread the word about the see, this marvelous thing, the seeing eye, and we will help start a school here. Dorothy got thousands of letters, but she was impressed the most by Morris Frank because he wanted to help others. And that was part of her sort of Christian mission was to help other people. And many of the other letters just wanted it for themselves. So Morris did go to seeing uh, to Switzerland. This was the first time that Dorothy and her trainer, Jack Humphrey, who was the first seeing eye trainer, um, attempted to train a dog for this type of purpose. Morris went to Switzerland he was, as you can imagine, he traveled alone. This terrified the cruise lines. He was sent over as an American Express package. And I used to think they had him, like, chained up down in the cargo hold or something, but it wasn't quite that dramatic. He had to stay in his cabin all the time and was brought out at mealtime because they, they couldn't trust this blind guy to wander around on the ship. You know, he might fall overboard at sea. That would be terrible. He went to Switzerland, was matched with a German shepherd, and as I said, Morris Frank was kind of your good old boy. And the shepherd that he was matched with was named Kiss, and his comment was, that's no name for a dog, I'm going to call you Buddy. So all of his dogs, which were all German shepherds and all females, were called Buddy, sort of like Trigger. 
So he trained with Buddy. He returned to the U.S. also on a ship. And interestingly, he was able this time to actually get out and walk around the ship with his dog. Now, this was in the late 1920s. A lot of aristocrats and uh, rich people and celebrities of that day traveled by ship. So there was always a reporter on board to kind of wire ahead to their editor to say, oh, Mrs. Astor is on board or the Duchess of of uh, whatever is on board. And they would be waiting at the dock to take their picture when they got off the ship. Well, this reporter saw Morris Frank walking around on ship with his dog. And so he wired ahead and told them there's this blind guy that has a dog guiding him. And they're like, no way. This is insane. However, when the ship docked in New York, they were there to meet him because the reporters just couldn't believe this. So there was this media storm waiting for him when he came down the gangplank. Now, this could have put a very quick end to the seeing eye. And this is before things went viral on YouTube. And probably something that Seeing Eye or any other guide dog school would not recommend anyone do when they first get home with their dog. But these were different times, and this was Morris Frank. There was a street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan called West Street, which was also called Death Street because it was very wide. There was a lot of horse-drawn carriages. Automobiles were, you know, had were not that old, really. So a lot of trams, a lot of traffic, very dangerous, and people were always being hit and killed on it. And one of the reporters challenged him to cross West Street. So Morris did, got to the other side, but he crossed very safely, got to the other side, and he's waiting and waiting, and finally this other reporter ran up and says, the other guys were so scared they had to take a cab. And, you know, it hit the wire services, and that's pretty much how Seeing Eye was born. It started in Nashville, Tennessee. Morris went around, you know, trying to raise money and getting people interested in the seeing eye. It started in Nashville, Tennessee. However, a year later, they um, moved to Whippany, New Jersey. And I've, I've, they've always said it's because it was so humid in Nashville. Well, I lived in New Jersey 10 years, and I really don't know what they're talking about, about the summers being humid. I suspect a lot of it had to do with Nashville is not particularly a pedestrian-friendly city, so that may have been part of the reason, but I, I don't know that. And the school's been around for over 80 years. If you ever get the chance to read a book by Peter Putnam, who is a, a former Seeing Eye grad, he's passed away now. He was a professor at Princeton for many years, and it's called Love in the Lead. And it tells the whole history of the see, Seeing Eye. And it's a really fascinating history. A lot of things in there that I didn't know. I worked for the school for 10 years, and it, it's really interesting. The Seeing Eye was actually quite criticized by blindness organizations and agencies at its time because they felt threatened by it. The motto is independence and dignity. And now, that's what the Seeing Eye gave people. I don't know many great innovations for blind people that haven't been criticised by the established agencies. Mm -hmm. You look at Braille itself yeah. and the fact that Louis Braille's books were burned by the School for the Blind. They had a big mm -hmm. bonfire and they burned his books because of this heretical uh, new system of raised dots. And so you do get people entrenched who don't like that kind of change. I also find it interesting that the formation of the Seeing Eye would have been right before the Great Depression. Yes. And then in 1930, when the Depression was very bad indeed, they were still in a good position where they yes. could actually move their school and set mm -hmm. up in better facilities. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Is Was Morris Frank, did he make himself the president of Seeing Eye? He was the president. I'm, I'm not sure if he made himself the president. He and Dorothy Harrison Eustace, you know, were the founders, co-founders. Right. And so, and, and had a huge role in the administration for many years. Yeah. He and Jim Kutch then would be the only blind presidents mm-hmm. of yeah. the Seeing Eye. Right. The rest have been cited. I'm also interested in the story behind the formality because sometimes, and I think it's just one of those things that is that have perpetuated even though it's probably no longer the case, I still hear people say that they choose a school other than the seeing eye because the seeing eye is mm-hmm. very formal. And one of the reasons for that formality was because blind people were perceived as being so lowly in the sort of social mm-hmm. strata of things. And in a more formalized society, it was customary for even children to be referred to as, you know, Master Mosin or whatever. Everybody mm-hmm. was given their honorific, but blind people were not. And so for the seeing eye, it was kind of a dignity thing about yes. treat, g- giving people their due place in society. And I know that NFB was criticised for the same thing, and they gave the same response, that it was all about, um, I, I guess, assuring people's place and dignity in a more formalised society. Right. And I think um, Jim Kutch made the point to us that he would concede that the seeing eye probably hung on to that for a little probably. long. yeah. And it, again, you know, it it was part of that whole independence thing because being called Mr and Mrs like your peers because you still had a little bit of that Victorian era being left over even into the the early 30s and 40s. But also the seeing eye, the reason they were formal, the reason they expected women and men to dress for lunch or dinner. And again, you're you're thinking that Dorothy Harrison Eustace was mainline Philadelphia money, was a society woman. And the seeing eye was really one of the earlier rehab centers, if you want to think about it, because they had people that came there to get a dog that had no idea how to cut up their meat or how to dress. You know, you had secretaries and staff members that would teach the women how to put on makeup or the gentlemen how to tie a tie. And that was part of the everyday thing because they expected it. There was no reason that they couldn't do these kinds of things. So even though they were training people to work with guide dogs, they were also helping them rehabilitate blindness, blind rehab as well, which they don't do now because we have NFB centers and other places such as that. But the formality as society has has changed, we are not a formal society much anymore. And another reason they wanted the students to dress for lunch is because the seeing eye, the students eat with the staff. They eat in the same dining room as the staff. They're not tucked away in a kitchen or a separate lunchroom. And that's for a variety of reasons. One, it is an excellent training tool for the students and dogs to have to navigate a busy dining room with food right at their nose level, sort of like a restaurant. It is a restaurant-style eating room. And also, there's a lot of donors, potential employers perhaps, that come and have lunch like we did with Jim and uh, Dave, Walt, and and, um, Nancy the other day. But and an employer might see it and say, gee, that man over there in that suit, he would fit right in with my lunchroom or my, my company. Because if you saw someone kind of slopped over with big sloppy sweatpants and that sort of thing, you'd be like, ew, you know, they, they can't, they can't uh, dress themselves. And it has relaxed. I mean, you don't have to go down and, you know, uh, 
tails and tie or anything like that. It's more business casual. If you look decent, nice pair of slacks, nice shirt, it's fine. They're not going to send you back to your room. And with that introduction, we'll go to our tour of the Seeing Eye. But just tell us again about the title of that book, and I imagine it's on all of the U.S. blindness-related repositories, right? Yes, it's Peter Putnam, and it's Love in the Lead. Excellent. Or Love Love in the Lead. I get it confused with the Disney movie Love Leads the Way, but his is Love in the Lead by Peter Putnam. (laughs) Very good. Well, thank you for the background. It's very good to have you on the podcast. He also wrote another one called The Triumph of the Seeing Eye. Or is that more? Peter Putnam. He's got a few books out about the seeing eye. Brilliant. All right. I appreciate it. We're at the moment in Jim Kutcher's office at the Seeing Eye, which is, of course, the world's oldest guide dog school. It has a global reputation. And thank you for having us, Jim. You're most welcome. And Bonnie is here, of course, who's a bit of a Seeing Eye veteran in many respects. Uh And we're going to take a wander. So. Okay. That sounds good. Well, let's uh, go back and begin at the front door. Yeah, let's, okay. place let's do that. Let's see. Uh, All right. Good girl, Lizzie. Right. Oh, whoops. Crashing into the wall. Lizzie's with us, too. Yes. Who's also a seeing-eye veteran. Yeah. Let's not smell. Good girl, Lizzie. Right. Over here to the right. This is, this is the main door to the lobby of the building. We're in the main building. We call this the house because it's where the students live when they're here in class. This building is shaped like the print letter H, and we are in the dead center of the crossbar of the letter H. We are facing, with our back to the door here, we are facing north. And so the the main corridor, we call it Main Street, runs left to right down the, uh, the long hall. Down to our left is uh, our multi-purpose room, one of our student lounges, the dining, three dining rooms, and the kitchen preparation area. To the right, in uh, the east wing, um, is uh, dormitory, student area, nurses uh, area. Um, we have uh, an exercise room downstairs, a laundry facility and a a student library with a couple of computers in it and some books and also a a ham radio station. And you recently renovated here? We renovated, uh, finished the renovation in 2012. We added uh, a multi-purpose room, seats, uh, easily seats about 75 individuals. Um, We completely redid all the infrastructure, new heat, air conditioning, remodeled all the bathrooms in the dormitory wing, Uh, On the technology side, we substantially upgraded our Wi-Fi. We now have about 25 hotspots all over campus, so we're we're very much saturated with Wi-Fi for those who bring their own devices, iPhones or other smartphones and computers and the like. Let's go down to the left towards the dining room, which would be... uh, As you lead the way, Jim. Certainly. This left. Oh, before we leave the lobby, I might point out that we have a a really nice fireplace. It's gas-fired, and on days like today, it's it's quite nice to come in and sit in the lobby Mm -hmm. here and and, uh, sit in front of the fireplace. And tell tell the listeners about the path that's outside, Jim. They might find that interesting, the path to independence. Sure. As you come in through the front door, the path to independence is, is essentially, think of it as the front sidewalk. Um, 
going left and right uh, across the entire front of the building. And it's made up of paver bricks. They are multiple sizes, uh, three different sizes of bricks. And uh, individuals can request something be engraved on one of these bricks, and for various levels of donations, you can acquire a small brick, a medium-sized brick, or a large brick. And so there's a lot of bricks out there with uh, names of graduates' dogs or thank you messages to certain instructors or staff members that people appreciated or in memory of kind of statements. And every year we take uh, every year we take a little bit uh, more of the blank bricks uh, away and add more with uh, messages engraved by donors and supporters of the seeing eye. So it's not all just graduates. It can be. Oh no, it's anyone. Okay. Yes, it's absolutely. What a lovely a, initiative. A lot of the puppy raisers, uh, just fa- friends and family members of uh, of uh, graduates and and the like. Good. 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 Right now, as some of the students are passing us, today is uh, photo day. Oh. So individuals are getting. Uh, Class photos and ID photos taken. Do so they do that still out front? No, it looks we, like they're going somewhere. We different. are doing that inside now. We do oh, it okay. inside the multi-purpose room because oh, okay. we can set up more uh, appropriate backdrops, you know, mm-hmm. uh, behind the individuals when they have their their ID picture. That makes sense. Taken. Let's head down to the dining right. room. There right. we go, We also have two pet cats in the area. Nash and Crosby are around here somewhere, so they may appear when least expected. (laughs) Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Vegas forward. Come on. I'm going to let you lead the way. Otherwise, Lindsay will go barely. Oh, there's the dog. Door opening on your right, Jonathan. Okay. Yes. All right. So I'm going to grab the door here. So you right or used to be, I assume it's still there, Jonathan, the coffee pot where the staff would get their coffee. Uh, the coffee pot is the actually important moved. coffee oh, pot. Since you were last here. Okay. Uh, we now have a servery, uh, sort of a cafeteria line oh, off, uh, okay. down the hall to your right before we walked in. Oh, okay. And uh, Staff can go through the servery line and pick up their own lunch on the way in. Students are still served by uh, dining room staff at the mm-hmm. table, but uh, at least one meal during class, usually on a weekend, uh-huh. students do go through the cafeteria area uh, and practice carrying a tray and managing a dog. <laughs> That's a good idea. Which right. so many challenge. students need to do and so many people in, in business places need yeah, to learn how to exactly. do. We also, are I guess, one it's a test for the dogs too, right, to make sure they're not distracted by all the tempting food. That's, that's correct. We are in one of three dining rooms. We're in the first dining room. We, this is the ranger dining room. Mm-hmm. Directly ahead of us is the terrace dining room. Uh, generally, st- the staff eats here in the first dining room, and they are seated first. And then students come in, walk through a busy dining room mm-hmm. to the tables in the terrace. So every meal becomes a training exercise in managing your dog around what's essentially a fully functioning restaurant. Yeah. So it's a good good training. Good and I think it took me years, Jim. I mean, I'd worked here for like almost 10 years. It took me years to realize it was all a training. Like, yes. <laughs> which makes perfect yes. sense. Yes, it just never occurred to me no, that that was... 
it's intentional. If yeah. you're a staff member and you sit out front, you run the risk of uh, a, a, a somewhat uncontrolled or less less well-behaved dog still being trained that might uh, try to snatch some of your. Yeah, <laughs> I think I ended up more lives. with their heads in my lap than there actually is taking that too. food. So. No, it's not so much food. It's yes. <laughs> How many students are you typically having here at any one time? Um, we class? have a maximum capacity of 24 students uh, in the dormitory, so each class can be up to 24. Uh, not every class is full. Uh, the world's getting to be a busy place, yeah. and we find uh, sometimes people have uh, unfortunate changes of plans at the last minute. Perhaps a family member gets sick or they're not able to get time off work, and it's very difficult to replace someone who two days before class says I can't make it uh, even though we have the capacity it's very hard to find uh, somebody who's willing yeah. to come in two days yeah. so not all of our classes are totally full but it's a maximum capacity of, uh, of 24 we produce between 250 and 275 graduates a year we do that in three different ways most of them are done by training them here on campus and the individuals live in the dorm but we have two other delivery models. We also have a program where, that we call Home and Away. It's from the perspective of the instructor, not the student. We should call it Away and Home if it was from the perspective of the student. Mm -hmm. But uh, what happens is a student will come here for a portion of the training period, and then they'll go home early, and an instructor will go home with them and finish their training in their home area. Uh, and then we also have full home turnover where we will send an instructor with a dog to a student in their home ter territory and train them at home. We reserve both of those other forms of training for individuals who've had at least a couple of dogs from us so we really understand the, the type of dog they need and the match so that we, we it's difficult to take five dogs on the plane and figure out which one is yeah. the, right, the yeah. right one once you get to the other part of the country. Um, and we also reserve it for those who have a legitimate need to stay mm -hmm. home. Perhaps they're taking care of a, of a family member, or perhaps uh, they, they just literally cannot get away from work. Yeah. So if you just basically, oh, I just really don't want to come to New Jersey in January, that's not, not a legitimate reason. Yeah, that's not as good of a yeah. reason. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that is a big difference. In New Zealand, they have abandoned the residential model entirely, mm -hmm. and now all of the training is done at the home and at the workplace of the applicants. Yes. So a and there difference. are other schools here in the U.S. that do that. It's just not, it's just not our, yeah. our model. Right. We find it very effective to have everybody come here. Yeah and we have yeah. all the dogs. We always have more dogs prepared than students in the class because there's, there's always that chance that uh, we'll need to do a dog switch or the dog we have in mind for somebody isn't going to be the right one. So uh, we, we always have almost twice as many dogs prepared for a class when the, when the class comes in. So when a student arrives here, you presumably have a dog in mind and that's based on some sort of preliminary assessment Work. That, that's correct. We actually almost always have two dogs in mind for every person, two that could work. It's based on their application process and material that they've, questions they've answered as part of the application. But for any first-time applicant to the seeing eye, we send an instructor to visit them in their home as a part of the application process. Now, yes, it's part of the application process, but in many respects, it's more so an opportunity for us to begin to decide what the best match is. So we use that data, and we won't bring a person into, we won't schedule a student into a class unless we're sure 
we have a couple of dogs that would probably be good matches for them. And then we fine-tune that decision in the first two days. When the students arrive on Monday, Monday and Tuesday, we fine-tune that assessment uh, with some more evaluation. And then on Wednesday morning after breakfast, everyone gets their dog. Very special time. Yes. Oh, yes. What is your waiting time now for like a new applicant and then as as related to a retrain? We do give retrains priority Mm -hmm. if a person has had a dog before and that dog can't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Then we we feel that it's slightly more important to give that person a successor dog, whereas somebody who hasn't had their first dog yet might be able to wait a little Mm -hmm. bit longer. Um, so, so we do give a priority to that. And the waiting period depends a lot on the applicant. We want to match the right dog with the person. And so the applicant who comes in and says, I want the right dog, any breed, any gender, any hair color, will get matched much, much faster than the person that says, oh, oh, I only want a lab, and oh, oh, and it has to be a, a female lab, and oh, and it has to be a yellow lab, <laughs> and oh, it can't be more than 48 pounds. <laughs> Once a person tries to put all those yeah. additional requirements on, it makes it very difficult to match the walking speed, the mm-hmm. amount of pull in the harness, and the temperament for whatever kind of environment the person lives in. Are they in a big city? Are they in a small area? So the answer is it can be as little as three months, uh, or as much as a long time, yeah. uh, really, if they're extremely specific about a preference. And we, we really try to encourage uh, not to be so specific about what a person is looking for. And you still traditionally reserve the summer months for those that can't come in the rest of the year, like students summer and months, teachers? Yes, summer months are students, college students, uh, a, lot of, a lot of young folks just ending high school and starting into college and those that are in the teaching profession. But we don't restrict it yeah. to that. Uh, it's just that's realistically that's what the only happens. time students yeah. can come. <laughs> yes, it's always a lot, of, a lot of young excitement and energy yeah. in that summer class. Uh, for some reason, for some reason, January is a little tough to get people to want to come to New Jersey. Why? Yeah. <laughs> on the other in hand, a January <laughs> class. I can understand that. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who live in cold and snowy parts mm-hmm. of the country that really want the opportunity to train with their new dog in the snow mm-hmm. because they know they're going to deal with that yeah. that, that back at home. Why don't we head okay. up to okay. uh, the, the clinic okay. and uh, look at the kennels okay. and uh, look at the uh, surgeries and so on. Okay. Cool. We're now walking on the path to independent springs that I was mentioning earlier. And we're under a uh, canopy. This is new. There's a, a cover here of with uh, pillars holding it up. So there's four park benches here so students can wait here if they're waiting to pick up a van to ride into town for a class or whatever. Or just come out and sit here in the afternoon or evening if they're not uh, taking a lesson. They just left. Left that student. Left 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 student. Children's toys, stuffed animals on the various sidewalks. Not so much where the students are working, but where the instructors are working with dogs just to teach the dogs not to distract on things like that. We're walking along the outside of the south wing, of the south end of the dormitory wing. We have
have an outdoor covered patio here that students can use. One of the things new with the renovation is half of it is um, an AstroTurf bottom floor area inside a, uh, a fence where students can practice with their dogs in off-leash activities, off-leash recall. So you can go out there inside the fenced-in area, take a ball or something and play with the dog off-leash, which uh, students didn't so much have an opportunity to do before the renovation. And we're going to enter this stairwell. Oh, okay. okay. The door on your left, opening out. Is this new? Yes. Okay, I'm going to say, remember, steps going up the stairs. Yeah. The steps are now inside this covered structure. Okay. There's a flight of stairs on your right going up. On your left is our escalator. Oh, that's where the escalator is. Um, oh, wow. And we used to only be able to train dogs on escalators in various shops in town. But with all the renovations in town and everything else, we're down to having only one store in Morristown that has an escalator. That's Century 21. Century 21 department store, yes. And we take hundreds of dogs and <laughs> students in there every year to ride the escalator, and we don't buy anything. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, so this gives us an opportunity uh, to train the dogs on the escalator here. We still take students into town because you want the students to. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Good. <laughs> sit. 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 Good job. Sit. Good job. Sit. living down under now. I am. This is my husband, Jonathan. Hello. Jonathan. This is Joan Markey. Hi. We were just in your hometown yesterday. You were? Boston, yeah. Okay. They're visiting co workers and stuff. Good. Good. Uh, you guys just taking a tour. Yeah, I've given Jonathan a quick tour. Yeah. Bonnie, of course, has seen it, but not yeah. some of the new things. Yeah, so. so we're just taking a quick tour, and he's recording it for his for he posterity. Does, for posterity, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, good to see you. Uh, great to see you too. Right. Sorry, the Red Sox didn't make it this oh, year. Oh no, yeah. big poppies last year. Yeah, but what are you gonna we're do? rooting for the Cubs. So. Uh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> Even I'm excited by it going, going to Game Seven. <laughs> All right, see you guys later. Bye. So this escalator is off right now because mm -hmm. we're saving energy, but it can run going up or going down. You can you can change the setting, and uh, trainers train the dogs here. And then, of course, as I said, we still take students into town. But all the, the early dog training and experience on escalators is done here. Escalators are kind of tough for dogs. They're inside a tunnel visually. You know, there's walls on both sides of them and its textures are different and everything, and so uh, this is a much better way. You're welcome to walk up the non-working escalator, which is Vegas's preference. He always dives for the escalator, oh, even though it's turned <laughs> off. Or you can take a two ste side steps we'll to your right and Lizzie take the stairs. Oh, you want to do the stairs? We'll see where she's going. Right. Lizzie, where are you going? You're taking the stairs, so I'm oh, on the escalator. Okay, Lizzie decided to take the stairs. We used to have that in the tea stations in Boston. They have the, the escalator right next to the stairs. And a lot of times I would beat whoever was on the escalator up. Except for the front door to the main building, mm -hmm. um, all doors everywhere on campus now require access cards. Oh, okay. And students are issued access cards while they're here uh -huh. uh, that will open their dorm room the same as it would in a hotel. Okay. And it also opens the doors in and out of the building. And after, after dinner, 
The front door is locked as well, and you need the access cards. Okay. Bonnie, it's Kathy. Hey, Kathy. How are you? Oh, it's great seeing you. Congratulations on your marriage. Thank you. Is yours as well? Yeah, this is Kathy, and your new last name is? Freebird. Freebird, that's right. Yes. Drummond was before. I was yes. This is my husband, Jonathan. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice very, to meet nice you. Very, very nice to meet you, finally. So, Dr. Cohn and I will give you the tour. Okay, that okay. would be excellent. Fantastic. All right. All right. That's great. Thank so, you both very thank much. Thank you so much. So, so um, this is the lobby of the, in the waiting area in the Vincent Stabile Clinic. And uh, the, um, this is the area that simulates a veterinary hospital for the students when they come in for their vet visits. And this is the area where the instructors come with their dogs to be seen at clinic hours. And so there's uh, benches and chairs um, for, for the students and instructors to wait with the dogs before they're seen with us. And uh, the ceiling has uh, tiles with paw prints in, printed in them, so it's kind of a uh, cute yeah. Theme. We always say that we gave a dog too much anesthesia, now they're floating on the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose those are painted paw prints. No one put their paw prints. They're actually, they're actually um, three-dimensional. It's like an impression oh, okay. into the cool. um, ceiling tiles. So. When we have young kids come for tours, they all uh, stand up and scratch their heads and wonder how the dogs got up oh, on the ceiling. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I can see. Yeah, that, that's a cool thing. Except yeah. the, the paw prints have three toes, not four. Oh, okay. Four. <laughs> Dear, what kind of animal made that? So, yeah. Shall we go in? Yeah. yeah. Here we go. Okay. So, uh, if you want to follow me. Make a left. Left, left. This is a dog that does not mind going in there. <laughs> like my previous so, dog. The, the first area we get to over here is our pharmacy area. This is where we have keep all of our medications and dispense them from here. And um, and we also now have uh, uh, digital labeling program here so we can print the labels to send meds home with. Cool. On your left is the is the ERG room. That's where we do electrovetnograms, which is under anesthesia we can measure the retinal response to light so we can determine the retinal function. And we do that on all of our dogs before they go to breeding and we do that on any dogs that may have a questionable issue with their retinas when we do their eye exams. And it's something that's really not done commonly in general hospitals. Uh, it's usually just ophthalmologists who do that. So it's pretty exciting that we have the technology and the expertise to do that here. And we send those readings out to Dr. Aguirre, who's a world-renowned veterinary ophthalmologist at the University of Pennsylvania, to read the electroretinograms. She had an eye exam. There's only like a couple of canine ophthalmologists in New Zealand connected with Massey University, so I took her last year to see one, and he looked at her and goes, you know Gus, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you do know you do one know. of your yes. previous dogs one of as well. Very well. Yeah. <laughs> Too well. <laughs> Too well, exactly. Um, to your right is a really big um, computer uh, monitor, which is our view box for looking at our digital radiographs. We have digital um, radiography, and we'll um, go over and see the radiograph suite as well, but this enables us to look at all of our um, images and we can zoom in, change the contrast, adjust, which helps uh, any kind of potential lesions pop out and be more easily visualized. And since we are on a digital system, uh, we have a boarded radiologist at U, well he's a retired emeritus professor, 
Beery at UPenn who reads all of our radiographs. And he is on our network, so he can be reading our radiographs from home literally while the dogs are still anesthetized after we've snapped oh. the radiographs. So we get the reports, um, depending on his schedule. You know, sometimes he's out um, busy doing things, but um, we often will get the radiograph reports um, at our computers before we get back from finishing the surgery because we usually do the routine orthopedic radiographs um, and then bring them into the surgery suite for their surgeries, for their routine spays and neuters if they're not being considered for breeding. Mm -hmm. And we do all the routine orthopedic radiographs, hip radiographs, shoulders, elbows, hocks, and we also do uh, pen hip radiographs, which is another method of measuring uh, um, hip uh, scores. And those are read by um, PennHip, which is a separate um, organization. So. All right, so moving Impressive. on. Moving along, Lizzie. Uh -huh. So if we go, continuing on to our lab. There we go. So in here, uh, ahead of us, and we don't have to go in, is the radiology suite. Okay. And this is where we take all of our x-rays on the dogs. Um, like I said, we do all the routine orthopedic radiographs on all the dogs um, when they're coming in for training. But we also use this for any additional radiographs we might need to do. If dog's vomiting, has GI signs, we might be looking for a foreign body, coughing, we're looking for pneumonia, you know, somebody who's limping, all of that. Um, we also have new ultrasound machine, which is wonderful, and we've attended some ultrasound seminars over the past year. And um, we have that at the breeding station as well, which is used uh, primarily for pregnancy detection and during whelping to monitor the fetuses and the progression of the whelping. So I've heard that there are certain genetic conditions that are creeping into the Labrador line a bit more. Um, is that the case? Things like um, epilepsy and, and, and even like a, an arthritis type thing that a lot of labs seem to be getting it. Well, there certainly are some conditions that some breeds are more prone to. I wouldn't say that they're creeping into the breeds. There are things that have been present, and we've known that um, there's idiopathic epilepsy in the Labrador. Um, it's not a super high incidence, but yeah. we do see it. It's more common in labs than in German Shepherds. Uh, and arthritis, any of the large breed dogs are more prone to that, um, but it's not something that's necessarily recently creeping in, but by doing all of the orthopedic radiographs, we're able to look for any signs of um, osteochondritis, uh, any kind of elbow dysplasia, sh you know, shoulder dysplasia, that sort of thing, mm. and prevent selecting dogs that have any issues from going to work or uh, breeding so that we see less of that in the future. That would yeah. still be the most common breed, though, right, for, for, for seeing eye dogs? Uh, we have the Labradors, the Golden Retrievers, and the German Shepherds right. here. Yeah. And yeah. still a lot of the crosses. And the, yes, and we're crosses. still doing the crosses, yeah. 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 And most of the things that the labs and are prone to, you know, it's Goldens are too, uh, but um, it's... If there's any diseases that they have genes for um, that have been identified, then we are screening for them. So uh, PRA, progressive retinal mm -hmm. atrophy, the gene was identified, so we're screening for that, and it's been eradicated from our colony, and we know we won't ever produce a dog with um, that, that genetic mutation. 
Uh, there's a bleeding disorder in the German Shepherd that uh, I, uh, Dr. Marjorie Brooks at Cornell identified the gene, so we're able to screen for that and um, know, know that we'll never produce another dog with that bleeding disorder again. And there are um, a couple other genetic conditions that are uh, affected, uh, are, are represented in our breeds, uh, which we screen for exercise-induced uh, EI yes. uh, collapse, exercise-induced collapse in the Labrador. Mm -hmm. So there's a gene identified for uh -huh. that, so That's we can test the the um, breeders and know that we don't create uh, any offspring with that. Uh, Degenerative myelopathy in the German Shepherd, they have identified the gene for that, so we do the genetic screening. It doesn't mean that there might not be another gene that crops, that mutates and creates similar signs, but anything that is identified in our breeds, we're testing for to prevent creating any dogs. We've been very fortunate. We've had uh, PhD geneticists on staff mm -hmm. for many, many decades. We, uh, The one we had for um, well over 20 years, uh, just retired recently, and we've hired a second PhD geneticist on staff. And so, the geneticist works very closely with here everyone here in the uh, in the clinic on the veterinary side. And as uh, Dr. Cohen said, we're trying to uh, not select any of these dogs to send to the breeding station that would propagate some of the undesired medical characteristics, but also the undesired uh, behavior characteristics. We're we're trying to breed for the right size. It's getting harder and harder to tuck a dog under an airline seat oh, yeah. these Even days. A small dog with, yeah. with the tuck under an airline seat. So, so our dogs, our dogs are smaller than they were 30 years ago. Quite a, quite a bit smaller than they were 30 years ago. Still, still big enough to do the job, but we're not, we're not putting out the 95-pound shepherds anymore. Yeah. What, what's your view on that, Jim? Is the bulkhead the place to put? <laughs> oh, no. Um, the, the problem is, the answer is, it depends. The bulkhead is great on some aircraft designs and the worst place to be on other aircraft yes. designs. So you really have to understand what aircraft you're getting on to to decide. Yeah, because some of yeah. the regional jets, you can. there's no way you can yes, put a dog in there. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, it, it used to frustrate me to no end that you would automatically get put in the bulkhead seat when in a lot of cases... At least in earlier times, or in New Zealand airlines, where perhaps they're not cramming in so many people, you do actually get a bit more room for the dog to lay down yes. if they could go under the seat in front. Yeah. Uh. All right. Cool. So, so if you want to shift 90 degrees to your, right. uh, well, actually uh, 180 degrees now, now to your left. <laughs> this is our endoscopy suite, oh, and we um, have the equipment to do GI endoscopies, and we also have a thinner that's used for bronchoscopy. Mm. So we do routine um, endoscopies on all of our German Shepherds, not because we find things in particular, but they are more prone to GI issues and it also keeps our skills up. And that way we can do endoscopies on any clinical dogs that it might be indicated on. And the bronchoscopy is if there's any concerns about the airways, we can take a look at that. And it's all hooked through digital um, so we can do recordings of video and 
digital photographs. So if we need to share and consult with a specialist, we can do that easily. Yeah, the human version of, I guess, the bronchoscopy a few months ago. That was an entertaining experience. I'm sticking the tube up your nose. Yes, I imagine oh. that the human patients are far more cooperative and you may not need as much anesthesia already. <laughs> but our patients need anesthesia I don't for any them. of them. I don't blame and, them. And for dentistries, too, yeah. which we'll see um, shortly. Okay. Um, okay. And for continuing, just it's a bit narrow here on your right yeah, is the treatment sink and counter. To the left is a cart with uh, uh, an emergency defibrillator and ECG. So we use that for routine ECGs on dogs and also, and God forbid, an emergency. But this is our prep area for surgery. And then over here on our left is the surgery suite, which is the doors are closed and it has uh, positive pressure ventilation like they have in human surgical suites. So when we're using it, we push a button and it, it is a little bit noisier, but then it's pushing all the air out so there's less chance of any kind of contaminants into our surgery site. And we've got all the monitoring equipment for blood pressure, pulse ox, um, heart rate. Um, the technicians are also constantly monitoring the dogs because uh, you can't rely 100% on equipment. Right. And, um, and then if we need to, we put them on IV fluids. And we've got two surgical tables in the surgery suite, so we can have two dogs getting surgery at the same time. And uh, the tables are heated as well. And when the dogs are uh, on the tables, we put big fuzzy socks on all four Aww. feet because they lose their body heat very mm -hmm. easily when they're anesthetized. And we want to make sure that they stay warm. And then over here, straight ahead, is our dental area. There's uh, some dental equipment just to your left, Bonnie. And um, this is where we do all of our pre-class dentals if the dogs need it. Uh, people are surprised when they find out how many routine dental cleanings we do because we're dealing, in general, with a young population of mm -hmm. healthy dogs. And they're saying, why are you doing a dental on a one-and-a-half-year-old dog or a two-year-old dog? And if the regular general vet saw the dog at their clinic, they'd say, yeah, there's like mild to moderate tartar, you know, just keep an eye on it, brush their teeth. But we don't want to send a dog that doesn't have a totally clean slate yeah, home with a student because it's much easier to get into a good routine of good oral health hygiene when you have a totally clean slate. Do I need to hurry up? <laughs> we, we were just looking at the time. Okay. We, okay. We're, we're going to so, go, so, go into the uh, kennels as well. Okay. So, uh, so that's in general. We also have isolation area and then two exam rooms. And mm -hmm. in one of the two exam rooms are all the eye ophthalmic equipment. So to do the fundic exams with the slit lamps to look at the... Um, lenses and we have a funded camera so if we find anything we can take photographs and consult with Dr. Aguirre uh, and find out you know in between if it's between visits and so That's very state-of-the-art probably even more say that than a lot of human hospitals. I was going to say they, they, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You get sick, a lot of people would dream in. of this sort of yeah. medical <laughs> attention you're also standing very near the recovery area, Aww. so the dogs that come out of surgery go into uh, a recovery area here with glass, and when they wake up, they get to see all the people, so they're not off somewhere by themselves yeah. as they wake up from anesthesia. Yeah, and that's good for us because we can monitor them, but we can also keep the doors closed, so sometimes they are very vocal. Yes, when waking I've up been in here season. when some of the males so. have woken up from being neutered. And, <laughs> it was two yes. girls that got spayed this morning, and they're just much less um, dramatic. <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> so that's why they're being nice and 
quiet. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's fascinating. This is the kennel portion of the Vincent A. Stabile Canine Health Center. Um, So we're in the main long hallway, (laughs) and we have four different kennels that kind of um, jut out from this main hallway. Uh, Creatively called A, B, C, (laughs) and D. Right. Get some donors to give names. Yes. Yes. Um, So in this building, we can house just about 188 dogs. Um, we also have the other kennel building, uh, Kirby, which is behind the main building, which can house up to uh, 240. Um, the buildings are kind of set up, uh, the same things happen in each building, but they're just set up a little bit differently. Kirby has everything enclosed, and in this building we have indoor kennels, and then we have the outdoor play areas, um, with also outdoor boxes for the dogs. Um, Kennel A basically houses the dogs that have just come back um, from their puppy raising families. So um, right now we're standing kind of between Kennel A and Kennel B. Um, So when the dogs come back from their families, um, most of them are unaltered at that point. So the girls live in the front and the boys live in the back, (laughs) so we don't have any accidental readings. They have all their medical procedures done, and when they get spayed or neutered, that was our laundry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is also done. Uh, um, then they'll get moved into a different kennel, usually kennel C, to start their training strings. Um, we do have the small population of dogs that we look at to potentially put to a breeding program. Mm-hmm. And then those dogs would then go to live in kennel B normally. Um, and then as they're getting assessed to see whether or not we want to put them into breeding. Um, Kennel B houses kind of a miscellaneous population. We have the dogs that we're looking at to put the breeding. We have some um, some adoptable dogs that have been dismissed from the program. We have some dogs um, that might be waiting to go into training. We have some dogs that may have been um, returned. We have some dogs that could be boarding. Yeah, that's where you stay. <laughs> um, kennel C and Kennel D, we kind of alternate in starting our new streams. Uh, the instructors usually spend the first month of training up in this building, and they use this nice long hallway to um, work on their, the dog's basic obedience, even though the puppy raisers have um, already taught them how to sit, stay down, that sort of thing. Um, the instructors are kind of just forming a bond with the dogs, kind of making sure that the dogs are clear on what those things mean. Um, also, when they're working in the hallway here, They'll teach them that wearing the harness is a positive thing, and mm-hmm. what pulling out the harness means, and um, just some of the basics they'll work out here before they start to go into town. Um, so, like I said, we kind of alternate in starting the new strings between C and D. So usually one or the other kennel is closed down, um, which is nice because if we ever have a heating or air conditioning issue, we have a place where we have some backup space. Yeah. Um, so. We have about 20 kennel assistants and one kennel supervisor and um, me, the kennel manager. Mm-hmm. And the kennel assistants are here from basically 6.15 to 5.45. Um, we feed the dogs twice a day. The dogs are let out into the play groups multiple times a day. Um, they have lots of fun while they're here. Um, <laughs> and they make friends and like yeah. Kid play groups so they have different cliques and stuff. They do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we kind of think about it as if you know, the dogs are kind of here 
like they're away at college yeah. because you know they're away from the families, away from their homes that they're raised in. They're all coming in here to learn. That's they're a good all analogy. Forming new cliques and new mm. friendships. They have roommates most of the time. <laughs> um, so we have co-ed roommates here. There's <laughs> a difference. <laughs> yes, there's a difference. Um, so you know, we just try to make them as happy and healthy as we possibly can, so that they're in the right mindset to learn what they need to learn while they're here away at school. Cool. Um, would you like to kind of filter down sure. the hallway a little bit? Great. Everybody's quiet here today. Ms. Well, the kennel assistants just left for lunch. Oh, okay. So um, the dogs have just been brought back cool. inside. Okay. Um, so right now we're passing on our right, um, there's like the kennel lounge. Mm -hmm. um, on our left, we're just walking past kennel B. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Right here on our right, we have um, our bathing room. Um, we have four bathing stations, and then which um, they're all elevated so that they're nice so we can walk up the dogs. We don't have to lift the dogs into the tubs. Mm -hmm. um, most dogs are willing participants, some are not, so sometimes we have to coax them with the treat a little bit. And then on the back side of the bathing area, we have a holding area. So when the dogs first come here from their puppy racing families, um, we can do a quick check over to make sure they're not bringing any fleas or ticks to make sure that they're not um, you know, bringing something into the kennel that we wouldn't want them to bring in. Um, you get to do go back to New Zealand and hold hand to check you out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it just a quick physical? Yeah, quick yeah, physical. Good. Yeah. No quarantine. <laughs> uh, home quarantine for two weeks. Okay. But they're very funny about bringing fleas and ticks in the country. So okay. she has to have like three or five flea treatments before oh, wow. we go home. Yeah. I guess it's good to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> it's a major process. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the, the way the kennels are set up, they're all set up kind of the same, where they mm -hmm. have the inside and outside boxes. Um, inside the dogs, we either have single boxes for them or double boxes. The single boxes are about um, four feet by six feet, and the, we have the ability to open up there's a guillotine door that runs between each single box to the next single box. So we can open those up to make double boxes if we want to. And, then, and, and just to be clear, when we say boxes, we're, we're not talking solid wall kind of boxes. These are wire mesh uh, areas. They're, they're kennel areas that we, we just slang call them boxes so right. we just don't like don't think stall. somebody's in a, yeah, uh, a cardboard stall. box in there it's like a horse uh, like a horse, horse stall horse exactly like, like a horse boxes. box that's yeah. a, in that yeah. fact that's where the word comes from um i i don't take vegas in there because he doesn't know those dogs and they don't yeah. know him and then they get way too excited oh, yeah. i'd be happy to hold lizzie if the two of you want to step in for do a, you want to see a yeah, minute. Yeah, i can great. hang out here i that. can hang out here with her all right i'll just stay here we'll while you go in we'll let you go in and take a quick right. peek like and then we'll head to lunch. Uh -huh. to lunch appreciate yeah. that okay well just come into the lobby okay
healthy. It keeps the air moving, right. circulating. We also have in each box, we have um, uh, liquor, which provides fresh water 24 seven which is great because we don't have to worry when we leave the dogs at night whether or not they've tipped over their water buckets or not. Right. And we also have fresh water that's pumped um, in their outside boxes as well. So do they get to socialize um, with each other? In, they in the... do. Yeah. <laughs> so right now we're standing in front of um, a row of boxes that holds about 12 dogs total. And on the back side, um, the second row of boxes hold 12 as well. So this front Section, section one, all of these dogs are familiar with one another. So if you can imagine coming in 6.15 in the morning and they, you know, they all are familiar with one another. We don't have collars on the dogs because um, for safety reasons, we don't want them to actually to accidentally get tangled okay. while they're playing. So if you can imagine coming in 6.15 in the morning, letting out 12 dogs, they go out to, there's a play area that's probably, I'm gonna say just a guess between, I would say like 30 feet by um, maybe 40 feet long. So it's it's all um, cement, concrete, so that we can uh, thoroughly disinfect the area. So they're all out there playing. The kennel assistants are always out there with them just to make sure even though our dogs are very socialized, you know, they're still dogs, so they could still potentially get angry at one another over whatever may be upsetting them. So the kennel assistants are always with them to make sure everyone's getting along, to make sure, you know, no one's having, um, say, diarrhea or vomiting or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the kennel assistants are cleaning up after them. In the summer, it's quite funny. When the when we have the really hot days, we put little baby pools out for the dogs. So if you can imagine 12 Labradors and Golden Retrievers and German Shepherds playing in the baby pool, they have lots of fun. Um, we're also big on uh, kennel enrichment. So when they're in the social groups, they get a different toy each day of the week. So today might be a Nyla Bone Ham Steak Day, and tomorrow might be a Nyla Bone Beef Bone Day. All right. And so we change them out so that by the time, you know, next Wednesday rolls around and they get their, uh, the, the same toy they had today, you know, they think it's new because that, you know, they haven't seen it in a week and it's it's fresh to them again. Um, <laughs> so we also have uh, what we call hanging toys in each of the dog's boxes. And it's basically, um, on, like Jim was saying, the boxes are very open. So they're solid to a certain point on the sides and then the fronts are just, um, like, you know, like the stainless steel uh, mesh and up higher it's stainless steel mesh as well and the, the tops are completely open so we have a cable that runs from the front of section one to the back of section two and from the cables we have hanging toys hanging and they're basically kongs and um, different nyla bones that are on um, a cable that hang down in each box so that when we're not here if one dog starts to play with the hanging toy it, because they're attached on a cable, it kind of jiggles them in the next box, so it entices the dogs in the next box to play with the hanging So what age ranges are the dogs here? Are the dogs? They're all yeah. they, were, they were trying to tell me the answer. Yeah, they're like, I'm 
<laughs> they're all right around the, like the two year mark. Some of them are a little younger, some of them are a little bit older. Um, exceptions, that would be if we're housing boarders, um, which are, you know, dogs that have been out working and we're just boarding um, for, you know, different purposes. The dogs are a little bit older, typically. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we'll have dogs returned for whatever reason, and sometimes those dogs are a little bit older as well. But for the most part, they're all teenagers. So not only are we dealing with a bunch of dogs, we're dealing with a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but they're, they're a lot of fun, and, you know, we're just all... Um, and each dog has their assigned box inside and outside um, so that we know, you know, we have anything um, special attached to any particular dog so you know, if a dog's being observed for a certain medical problem, we'll have a tag so that the kennel systems will know to pay extra attention to that dog. You know, say if the dog had a history of limping, um, you know, we'll have the tag up and we monitor those things, but the tags are to alert the kennel systems that this dog has had this issue and that we're paying extra attention. It's a great facility, isn't it? I mean, it's state of the art. It, it's, I love working here. Yeah, I can tell. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's so important to enjoy what you do, I think. And you know, everyone that works here, we all, you know, we all want to contribute to the dogs as much as we can so that they end up helping someone in the long run. Yeah, yeah, that it's nice it, to make a difference, isn't it? Yes. You know, you know the kennel systems don't have the most glorious yeah. position sometimes. You know, it's a little dirty. It's, makes you very tired at the end of the day, but it's very rewarding. What's the history of the park command? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is my belief, but not proven, that it, come, that it comes from when we first operated the Seeing Eye in Nashville, Tennessee, right after the founding of the organization. At that point, we had students living in a hotel, mm -hmm. and they would go to the city park across the street from the hotel to empty, to have the dogs go to the bathroom. And I can just imagine the instructors walking through the hotel and knocking on the students' doors and saying, okay, it's time to go to the park, it's park time. Meaning walk to that city park across the street. Now, I wasn't there in 1929, so I can't prove that, but I really believe that's the origin of park time. That makes sense. Right, well, that's a much more seemly explanation than one I've heard, which is that park is about P-A-R-C, and that it's a reverse yes. of... Yes. <laughs> but no one yes. has ever figured out where Juno comes from. Is that true? That they... Well, Juno is a uh, Greek, Greek god of matchmaking. Oh, okay. Um, and, or goddess, excuse me, of matchmaking. Oh. And so I think it comes from Greek mythology. Okay. And now, Stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. Well, what an extraordinary week it's been. And in a podcast dedicated to looking at all aspects of life from a blindness perspective, not just human interest or blindness specific or technology stories, it would be an oversight not to mark such a significant development in U.S. political history. But if you're all electioned out or you're simply not interested in my thoughts, then this is deliberately the last item on this week's podcast, so you're welcome to stop it now if you like. Given the current climate where many people continue to yell at and distrust each other, 
I want to preface my comments by anticipating some of the email reaction that I might get and offer a preemptive response to the question of what right someone who isn't an American citizen has to comment on U.S. political matters. Well, first, both New Zealand and the USA allow freedom of expression, and really, I could just stop right there. But second, I became captivated with U.S. politics over 30 years ago in high school when I was doing history. I specialised in U.S. history and political science as an undergraduate at university, and have followed every incredible twist and turn of this seemingly endless campaign. Every candidacy announcement, every primary and caucus, every moment of both conventions. Yes, I probably need a life, but I geek out on the political process around the world like some people geek out on sports from around the world. When Bonnie and I were planning this trip to the United States to catch up with friends and family, we timed it specifically to coincide with the election so I could experience it from here. Finally, what happens in the United States has global consequences. So looking at the result first from a blindness perspective, it seems to me that disability advocates will have to be particularly vigilant as the Trump administration's agenda is clarified. Historically, much legislation to advance opportunity for disabled people has been advanced in a bipartisan manner. Let's not forget that the Americans with Disabilities Act, legislation that has inspired disability activists around the world, was passed during the administration of the first President Bush. Although some legislation has been passed in recent times, there have also been some concerning setbacks, with the US failing to ratify the Marrakesh Treaty and the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabled People. With the GOP now controlling Congress and the White House, even if legislation isn't specifically eroded by amendment, erosion through lack of resources to apply and enforce it is a real possibility. Disabled advocates will also have to be prepared for the cultural implications of what's to come. If you're brave enough to read the comments on some of the technology stories that are published on campaigns to make websites or apps more accessible, you'll no doubt have seen responses from people who think that it's an unrealistic expectation for disabled people to think that they should have access to these things. The web and smartphones are, they insist, visual media. You can't see, therefore you can't be expected to use a computer yourself. Get someone to read it to you. I've seen that written many, many times in the comments. Now, some people who secretly feel this way have kept their opinions to themselves for fear of being branded not politically correct enough. In this new climate, they may feel emboldened to take a stand against accessibility. Undoubtedly, it's a time of uncertainty for anyone who considers themselves to be a member of a vulnerable minority group. Much will depend on whether President-elect Trump continues the more conciliatory, inclusive tone he's adopted post-election beyond his inauguration. Now, on the flip side, many blind people know what it's like to feel like the economic recovery everyone's talking about has passed them by. The job statistics come out and we hear that so many more thousand jobs have been created, unemployment continues to decrease and economic growth is healthy. Yet many blind people see no light at the end of the tunnel, sending in those job applications and being rejected. Worst of all, Sometimes that rejection comes because ill-informed views of blindness are in play, not because 
of a genuine inability to do the job or because you were beaten by a better candidate. So even if you didn't support the president-elect, and let me be absolutely upfront and say that if I had been able to vote, I would not have voted for him, perhaps when the surprise and maybe the grief subsides, you can have empathy for where some of the voters who made this result possible are coming from. There's no doubt that the style of campaign run by the president-elect has activated a tiny minority of people whose views are abhorrent to most people. But I still believe that such nasty attitudes aren't present in large enough numbers to elect a president of the United States. While we've been on this trip here in the US, we've been in two hotly contested states, Virginia and Nevada. Before the election, I tried to engage different people in conversation about how they were feeling. Both Bonnie and I were surprised by how much pro-Trump sentiment we came across. Many people felt that the American dream was no longer accessible to them. Some struggled from paycheck to paycheck. Others didn't have a paycheck at all. And proud people who just wanted to put food on the table for their kids were demoralized and without any hope. When the jobs in the factories and the steel mills disappeared... Governments said that workers would be retrained and they'd find new, better jobs. That's not what happened for many. As I say, I suspect some blind people strongly relate to that profound sense of despair, even though not everyone would agree that the outcome of the election will provide the solution to the problem. President-elect Trump has received fewer newspaper endorsements than any major party candidate for president in history. The polls and the media made it clear that Tuesday's election was simply a formality, a necessary process to go through before the inevitable succession of Secretary Clinton. And those that President-elect Trump called the forgotten men and women said, wait on a sec. Then they threw a political grenade at the smug establishment and they knew exactly what they were doing. Is there some sort of coalition to be established with the more reasonable elements of those who brought this victory about? Can blind people and others with disabilities say, we're forgotten too? The media doesn't talk about our issues very much either. We're mums and dads as well. People with hopes and dreams, and we want to get ahead and be forgotten no longer as well. Who knows? But in the roles I've held as an advocate over the years, I've learnt that you have to adapt to the prevailing economic and world view to get ahead. If you're dealing with politicians on the left of the spectrum, you can go with a social justice argument. If you're dealing with politicians on the right of the spectrum, you have to be prepared to advance a compelling economic argument. The election's over now, and the people have spoken. It's up to leaders in the disability community to deliver what they can in the climate that now exists. Yes, the people have spoken, and this too has been the topic of much debate on social media since the election. This really gets the political science geek in me going. As I record this on the Friday afternoon after the election, it appears that when every vote is counted, more Americans who voted wanted Secretary Clinton to be the president than Mr. Trump. That doesn't matter for two reasons. First, presidents are elected on a state-by-state basis. And second, Americans have never directly elected their president. They actually vote for electors to the Electoral College, who then elect a president. I'm amazed and 
frankly surprised by the number of Americans I come across who don't seem to understand how the Electoral College works and indeed why it's there at all. Let's start with the last point first. The founding fathers of the US distrusted direct democracy, concerned about the people picking someone unsuitable, so they built the Electoral College into the Constitution as a fail-safe. Alexander Hamilton, you may have heard of him at least through the musical, said, and I quote, This mechanism was designed to ensure that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications, unquote. So it can act as a check against the people democratically electing someone who these eminent people deem to be unfit. Since Tuesday, some who were strongly opposed to President-elect Trump's election are arguing that if the Electoral College can be convinced that Mr. Trump is unqualified for the office he has won, the Electoral College can intervene and nominate someone else. And one can't help wondering how Mr. Trump might have responded if he had received more votes than Secretary Clinton, but she had won the Electoral College. We'll never know for sure, of course, whether he would have conceded as graciously as she did, but I suspect he would not have. I suspect he would have been lobbying the Electoral College vociferously and seeking to galvanise his millions of supporters who follow him on social media. Nevertheless, Americans rightly have the expectation that after going through such a lengthy process to choose their president, that choice will be respected. If there were any kind of serious attempt on the part of Electoral College members to nominate someone else, it would create a constitutional crisis whose ultimate outcome could be disastrous. So I can't foresee a time in future when the Electoral College will ever be used for the purpose for which it was included in the Constitution. Therefore, why have it? If the Electoral College were to be abolished, it could be replaced with a system that retains the current formula for weighting the amount of impact each state has on the outcome. In deference to the federal structure of the United States, the number of Electoral College votes a state has is determined by adding the number of members of the House of Representatives in each state, plus the two senators. Under the current system, smaller states have a disproportionate impact on the presidential election. As a recent article in the Huffington Post explains, Wyoming has a population, just picking on Wyoming for a second, has a population of 584,153 people and it has three electoral college votes. And that means that each Wyoming elector represents 194,717 voters. Now, California, by contrast, has a population of 38,800,000 people and it has 55 electoral college votes, so each elector represents 705,454 voters. So each vote in Wyoming is worth 3.6 times more than each vote in California. Other smaller states, such as Rhode Island, Montana, North and South Dakota, Nebraska and Idaho, also have exalted political power. And then, of course, you get into the swing states where the candidates spend a lot of attention because they're in the balance. Somebody who votes in a state like New York or California is unlikely to affect the Electoral College outcome. Ironically, President-elect Trump himself criticised the Electoral College after the 2012 election. This is now the fifth time in US history 
that someone has assumed the office of President of the United States despite more people voting for somebody else. It happened first in 1824, that was Adams over Jackson. Next, it happened in 1876 when Hayes won over Tilden. 1888 was the next time when Harrison won over Cleveland. And then we go to 2000, who can forget Bush over Gore. Now we have it again in 2016. Sadly, it seems that the US is finding it difficult to have respectful national conversations at present. But in the 1980s, New Zealand held an inquiry into the way that it elects its politicians. An alternative method was recommended by a royal commission to which everybody submitted, and that was ultimately put to a referendum and adopted. Perhaps one constructive way to channel the concerns some feel about this week's outcome is to advocate for electoral reform and debate about what constitutes fairness in an American context, particularly when the world is a much smaller place as it is now in 2016, thanks to the internet and indeed radio and television. While I enjoy the many twists and turns of the US political process, it does seem to me that respect and constructive governance isn't fostered by the fact that the US seems almost perpetually in campaign mode. Politicians are always looking ahead to the next election and whether allowing legislation to pass would be considered kowtowing to the party in the Oval Office at the moment. There has to be a period between elections where the focus is purely on governing. One way to achieve this might be to streamline the political system so that there's a national primary for both parties on one day. The election could take place via a single transferable vote system where voters must rank the candidates in order of preference. This ensures that the candidate who has the most broad support is elected rather than seeing candidates win a primary with a plurality and not a majority of the vote. Under a system like this, you could delay the election campaign until, say, June of election year. If a national presidential ballot were then held in the United States by popular vote, this may allow the presidential election to be federalised and run under one consistent set of rules that promoted participation by all, including blind people. In the meantime, a president has been determined using the rules everybody knew about and agreed on. It's up to everyone to ensure that hard-won gains for the disability sector are preserved. It would also be nice to think that people may be willing now to tone down the rhetoric, stop distrusting one another so much, stop talking past each other, and start talking to each other again with empathy and open-mindedness and respect. Well... A guy can dream. Be kind to each other, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.